0: He looks for the Lion of Judah, and what he sees instead is the Lamb. Behold the Lamb, the story of redemption written on his hands. Lord, we thank you for the story of redemption because we are a part. Those of us who have trusted your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, will forever rule and reign with you. And the hallelujahs will be eternal and too numerous to count. We thank you, we praise you, we thank you that we have a moment to glimpse glory. Lord, pray I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to what your word has for us this day. Through Christ our Lord, I pray. Amen. So one of the privileges that, that I've enjoyed in my years, enjoyed is not the right word, that, that I've been honored uh, with in my years of ministry has been to journey alongside people as they neared the end of their earthly journey. For some, it was as if they were looking into a, a dark abyss with, with no hope and, and nothing uh, for them. And for others, it was as if they were seeing uh, glory before they were there. And as, as people uh, draw uh, near to death, they, they gain a sense of clarity that they may not have ordinarily had in other parts of their life. And they, they begin to glance, even for a moment, into their life's rear view mirror. The psychologist Eric Erickson referred to this season as ego integrity versus despair. Ego integrity is is when a person who is in that in part of their life they they feel satisfied or a sense of satisfaction, a sense of 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 pride. Not that everything went well, not that everything was perfect. Life just doesn't work that way. But when they look back, they're able to take the good and the bad and say, on the whole, uh, life was good. Uh, The believer would say, on the whole, the Lord has been good to me. On the other hand, despair is when a person looks back over what they've done and they're filled with regret and disappointment, the promotions that didn't come, the children that didn't turn out the way they had hoped for. Life is stale and they unhappily wait for the inevitability of death. Believers are subject to both of these. Simply because we're a believer, We're uh, we're not immune. But nevertheless, because we are Believers, we have a higher incidence of ego integrity simply because we believe that and have confidence that there is life beyond the grave through Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote at the very end, um, the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote this. For us, uh, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that we all Lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. The world does not believe that at all. For people who do not trust in Jesus Christ, uh, they have uh, that kind of hope is absent. Um, I mentioned this morning in the Sunday school class that I was going to uh, read a quote from uh, Irving Yalom who uh, undoubtedly one of the most influential psychologists of our times. Anyway, they view that Christian hope as a psychological aberration. And yet, he wrote this, or actually he said this, uh, I, I heard him say this, Still, I do remember writing about not having any regret or fear whatsoever about death. In fact, I have a strange experience in which when I think about dying, I think about it, and the idea flashes into my mind that I'll be joining Marilyn. And then there that's his wife, his deceased wife. And then there's this other part of my mind which says, this is nonsense. Marilyn doesn't exist. She's dead. Her brain is dead. There's nothing left but her bones. But that's somehow separate. I keep that separate in my mind. There's this part of me saying I'll be joining Marilyn. And that gives me a great deal of satisfaction. And it just wipes away any misery or anxiety I have about dying. This is truly a remarkable statement from a man who has made the understanding of the mind his entire Uh, life. And yet, this man is dedicated to evolution, materialism. Religion, at best, is irrational. And yet, at 90 years of age, against his will, seemingly, he believes that there is something more. But he cannot allow himself to embrace it. He does not believe, he will not believe, simply because he chooses not to believe. I would prefer my comfort to be based on something more than a psychological trick of the mind. But the believers' view of death is different. Uh, we view this life properly understood, all of us as believers view this life as a uh, merely and the opening act, the first the prelude even the, to the life to come. As we've been working through Second Timothy, we've seen him delivering essentially the gold that he has to give. Timothy knew uh, that that Paul understood that these were the last words he was going to be able to impart Timothy to Timothy in this life. And when somebody knows, it's almost like a blessing that they're passing on. They don't just say, uh, yeah, you know, okay, wait, let me come up with a blessing. A a, a real blessing is thought through. A real blessing is something that's considered, and it takes on the whole area, the whole spectrum of life, and that is what Paul is doing. Timothy here's how to live, Here's how to leave a legacy. I mean, Paul knew his death was imminent. And that these were likely his last words and he wanted to share everything. And so now we turn our attention to Paul's final teachings. His words are filled with vivid imagery. It's it's a wonderful, and it gives us a glimpse into how he viewed his impending death and what he thought about his life because he looked into the rearview mirror himself. And these few verses, Paul shows us how we should live and die. He wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul had been in prison many uh, times before, but this time was different, and he knew it. Uh, He knew that he was to be executed and that that could happen at any time. Even though he does offer some hope, we see that Timothy might be able to come and bring some comforts uh, to him. He also knew that uh, that might not happen. And yet he did not despair. And he uses two fascinating images to describe his impending death. The first one he said is that life, his life was being poured out like a drink offering uh, to God. Now that phrase doesn't mean uh, much to our uh, Western ears at all, but it was a phrase that was rich in meaning uh, to Timothy. At least, at least for a time, and it, it will still happen uh, doubtless, but at least for a time, I would say, from 2001 or 2002 to 2015 or 2016 or so. On any given day, you could go to Arlington, and if you watch carefully uh, and reverently, uh, you would see someone kneel down, and you would see someone uh, pour uh, a beverage either over the gravestone or on the grave, and uh, for someone that they loved, and cared for who had been killed in combat. And this is an ancient tradition, uh, and it even has connections to modern toasting that we have. Less than two months before uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, that was in August, on June the 19th in 1945, there were several squadrons of B-29 uh, bombers that bombed uh, Shizuoka, Japan, and in the confusion and the darkness, uh, two of the B-29s collided uh, with each other, and both air crews were killed. I can't help, as I, I had prepared uh, this uh, prior to the air show in Dallas, and please remember all the six who were were killed, if you've seen any uh, photos or you watch the video of that, you have a good idea of what happened that night over Shizuoka. And uh, anyway, they were all, uh, as in Dallas, uh, you don't go down like that and survive. Jacqueline uh, Ashwell, the superintendent of the World War II Valor uh, in, Pacific, uh, in the Pacific, the National Monument, she said this, war is tragic. It can bring out the worst in mankind, and yet there can be glimmers of hope, and that out of death and destruction can emerge exemplary virtue. Uh, what she was talking about was a, a farmer, a Fukumatsu Ito. And what he did was he was uh, present when these planes collided and they, uh, the debris and uh, landed uh, on his uh, property. And as the citizens came to desecrate the, the, the bodies for what the, uh, you know, just really the horror that the bombers were delivering, he pulled out his uh, uh, samurai uh, sword and he defended uh, that crash site. To the pain of death, anyone who would desecrate those uh, bodies. And when they saw his, his sincerity about this, they said, we're, we're not we're not going there. And so he created a little monument where he buried those airmen, and where he also uh, buried uh, citizens who had been killed in the raid. And he did so uh, even before the end of the war, in order to promote peace between the United States and Japan. One of the things that he retrieved from the B-29 in the wreckage site was a canteen. And on this canteen is the imprint dented in of a man's hand uh, very, very clearly in uh, Probably in the uh, the moment uh, before the the crash, and so w- once a year for the past seventy seven years, this uh, canteen has been used by the highest military and uh, political officials to pour a a, a drink offering over uh, to to the honored dead over this uh, monument, and they also use it at. Pearl Harbor. On the 57th anniversary of this event, for reasons that would take far too long for me to detail here, uh, Barbara and I were the ones who uh, poured uh, the the drink. And while entirely subjective, there was an unmistakable sense in which there was a a, a A a communion in a chain of people that led all the way back to that uh, dark night. And a drink offering was an offering of wine that was poured out on the altar in conjunction with the animal sacrifice. And it represented the blood of the sacrifice. In the sense, there's also a sense in which it's the giving of one's uh, strength to the point of death. That's what uh, is in Philippians 1, 20, uh, 1, where Paul says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, there's that notion where he is, he is giving of his life to the point where it could lead to his death. And that ancient concept comes, comes with that, where there is a, where there is a communion, and understand that I'm not making a direct but an indirect reference to the similar uh, thing when we have our worship service, it, communion. We're together communing the bread and the cup, and that brings us in a, a spiritual uh, way, certainly much more than Barb and I experienced, into the presence of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And so uh, Paul was not seeing uh, his death as, as a tragedy or tragic, but as a completion of a life that had been poured out for God, designated for that purpose. This was his purpose, was to pour out his life before God. And that's a good uh, perspective for us to maintain. As long as Paul was alive, he lived. There are those among us, there are those that you may even know who are dead yet while they live. Their life is hollow and meaningless to them. And and Paul is saying, no, every day that you have is a precious gift and it's not over. Stand up and live until we die. The second image Paul uses is... uh, is just the word itself is just a wealth of word pictures. In fact, no fewer than four directly uh, with this word. First, it has the notion of examination. It has the notion of uh, taking this uh, braided uh, rope and un- unbraiding it and uh, to see the individual uh, strands. It, uh, you read this word as departure. Probably most of your versions uh, has, has that word, and, and that's a part of it. But it's far more, uh, it's far more than that. And uh, it's, uh, secondly, well, I mean, he's, he's saying that. He's analyzed his life, and it's ready for essentially the analysis of the, the Lord himself. Second, it has the idea of being released from uh, bondage. Specifically, this word is used of unyoking an oxen. Uh, but when it's related to people, it's the, it's the uh, removal of the shackles uh, so that you are now free. Third, it has this notion of moving from one place to another. The best way we would put it into English is uh, we're pulling up stakes. Now, maybe not everybody uses that phrase anymore, but the the notion here is we're taking the stakes out of the tent so that we can move the tent elsewhere. And finally, and most poignant uh, to me, it is uh, uh, the word that's used of of loosing uh, the ropes from the ship as it uh, pulls out of uh, port. The most beautiful I've seen this uh, portrayed, at least in film, was in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings when Frodo and and Bilbo and Gandalf and Galadriel and Elrond, they depart to go to the undying lands. The song Into the West, which if you haven't heard recently, uh, I would uh, recommend that you take a moment to listen to that was inspired by Tolkien's uh, Legolas, and it was Legolas' uh, lament. And it fully demonstrates Tolkien's and Lewis's and Paul's belief that death is not the end. It is only the beginning. And, and again, like I mentioned before, people who are closer to death, they understand this, they see clearly things that are important. Things may be challenging. They may be more challenging than we care to admit. But they're simple. They're not. they It's not complicated. Uh, the things that uh, confuse life become uh, clearer. Priorities change because they see what matters. And when we look in verse seven, we see how Paul evaluated his own life. He says, "I have fought." The good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So when Paul reflected on his life, as uh, we we do, uh, he felt accomplished. He felt like he could be proud. I don't mean that in the sense of you know pride like hubris, but he felt good about what he had had done. He had honored the Lord until the end of his life. And and he uses three different images for this, right? I fought the good uh, fight. Paul endured a lot of uh, battles through the years. He endured battles with government officials, uh, battles with criminal elements. Uh, He endured battles with false teachers and, and battles with people who twisted the gospel to their own ends. And uh, Romans seven tells us he even endured some battles with his own, uh, with his own uh, life, his own tendencies. But through all of this, when Paul reached the end, he said, "I have fought the good fight." I think the question for us, as it relates to how to apply this th- that Paul is talking about, is uh, how do we fight the good fight? What is that? What does that mean? I just want to share with you two principal uh, notions here first. First is we need to wisely choose what we fight for. If you want to fight, if you want to be pugnacious, if you want to get into things, trust me, every minute of every day allows opportunity. You will not be lacking in finding that the question is, not that there are opportunities to fight, but it's the understanding that not every fight is worth fighting. Not every battle is worth the engagement. Paul fought for certain things, not the least of which was to hold on to the truth. He did not fight over petty things. He didn't even fight over preferences. Often, one could make a very strong argument, he didn't even fight for many of the rights that he had. He would allow himself to be wronged in order that the gospel might be advanced. So choose. we need to choose what we fight for. And second, when we choose to fight because we feel it's necessary, then we need to fight in the right way. I mean, it's possible to fight for the right things in such a way that you burn everything that you stand for. So you have to do it in the right way. You have to take actions. And elsewhere, Paul tells us how to do this, and other scriptures do as well. I mean, not the least of which is speak the truth in love. And we need to speak the truth. We need to stand up for the truth, for what is right. But we must always do it, in uh, love, and the way we do that, I think the prim- there's a primary way to do that. And uh, and someone uh, someone was uh, prescient in in that this morning. That means they saw ahead to see uh, that I was going to mention that this morning. I thought that was great. I love when these things uh, come together and you don't plan them. But what enabled him and what should enable us to fight well is to remember that the person that you're engaged with is not the enemy. That is not the enemy. The real enemy we see in Ephesians 6 is we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the, the, uh, in the, the darkness, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And so the real enemy is not of the people. The real enemy is Satan. It's not an opposing political party. It's not a competing ideology. It's not even a competing religious belief. Our enemy is Satan. And so to win the battle, we don't fight with weapons of the world. We don't resort to worldly tactics. When we do, we we burn bridges that we don't want to burn. But the weapons that we use need to be the word of God, prayer, love, and truth of scripture. And if we can remember who we're actually fighting against, then there will be uh, less uh, uh, fighting all around. Because we can do that in a way that honors the Lord. The second image that Paul uses is the finish. he finished the race. Now I want you to get this, right? Paul does not say, you know, put the wreath on my head, I won. I, you know, the, it was it was just last Sunday, right? The New York, the New York marathon. I will guarantee you that 99% of those, probably even higher, victory was crossing the finish line. That's victory. Now you do have the few people who are like, I don't know, you know, just just they go, and I don't know how they do that, but they do, and they want to win, and they're disappointed if they get second. You know, I mean, so, okay. But most people, they just, you know, it's just, I didn't give up. I, I ran the race. The, the truth is, I've never run a marathon. Uh, Barb's uh, done, how many have you done? Two, three, two. I've never, I've run some, you know, some 5Ks and 10Ks, but I've never run a, a marathon. For me, victory would be crossing the, the, the finish line. The third image uh, is that he remained faithful. He had firmly held on to the word of truth, and that's also what we should do as well. We should strive to be faithful to the task that God has set before us. Then remember, whatever the task that God has for you in your life, the burden that he places on you is light. It is not heavy compared to the burdens that we place on ourselves and certainly not heavy compared to the burdens that others would uh, have placed on us. And then we come to the, uh, the last uh, verse in the passage. Paul explains the hope which drives him. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says that he's waiting for this heavenly. Prize, namely the the crown of righteousness. You know, as uh, if you've you know been in church for more than a year, you, you've heard about the Olympic games and how the wreath uh, the, the victor was given a, 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 a just a wreath uh, of leaves uh, that he wore on his head like a crown, and uh, that that would fade, and it, it was something that would not last. It had no. It, the crown itself had no eternal uh, value. But regardless, it was something that was worn to say that I completed and competed valiantly and was victorious. And so the Lord is going to give him a, a, a crown that will uh, never fade away. And I mean, what is the crown of righteousness? I, I don't know. As with many of the Lord's rewards, I don't know, but I do know this, uh, they will be more uh, blessed, more uh, valuable than we can possibly begin to imagine. And the neat thing about this one is the Lord uh, himself will give us this uh, crown. He will declare us uh, victor. He will declare us righteous. I mean, think about the comfort that Paul would have received by, by thinking ab- about that. He had in his mind the nearness of this event. He was in prison, having been declared a, uh, a, a rebel, a, a criminal, whatever he might have been declared by, by Nero, and he was awaiting execution. And yet, in the heavenly realms... The judge, the righteous judge, was there to declare a different verdict. Not guilty, but righteous. And Paul tells us that that blessing is not unique to him. It's not because Paul was also special. No, it's for anyone who is looking forward to Christ's return, the same prize. And that is something that all of us who are true believers, that we can one day know we will stand before the Lord. We will receive the crown of righteousness as well. Now, people don't like to think about death. It, we, we don't, especially in the West. We do everything we can do to hide it. We don't like making wills. We don't like buying life insurance. We don't like putting together advanced directives. Uh, I mean, the reason straightforward because if we do and when we do those things we are admitting to ourselves that we one day uh, will die and while we may think it's morbid, I don't think uh, morbid at all I, I think it's I think it's wise uh, to do this the people have clarity they see what's important they see what's not worth worrying about and that's what at least in part, makes Paul's words so powerful. Here's a man who, when he looked back on his, the way he had lived, he did not regret how he had spent his life. He had spent it in service to the Lord. So here's the challenge for each of us. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. I guarantee you that those six people, who were in that B-17, in that Air Cobra, when they woke up in that morning, uh, did not think this would be their last day at all. But how would you evaluate your life? What things would you wish you had spent more time doing? I mean, do you really... I don't want to be trite here, but it is true. I don't want to be trite, but it is true. I've sat with many people as they lay dying and as they look into the rearview mirror, and I'm the one person that's remaining because... They've either outlived everyone or no one can get there in time or whatever the issue might be, and they want to pass something on to you. They want to tell you something about who they were or what they had done so that their in at this point could have some meaning, so that they could pass this on to one more person. And I don't want to be trite, but the truth is, They don't talk about, I wish I had worked more. You've heard this, but I'm telling you, this is true. They don't. They don't talk about making more money. They don't talk about playing more sports. They don't talk about partying. They don't talk about buying stuff. They don't. Invariably, invariably, it's about people that they love are people that they lost. Invariably, it's about relationships. Invariably, it's about who they were in relation to others. In the book of Second Timothy here, it, 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 Paul shows us how to live and how to leave a legacy. And the way we'll be remembered is the pattern of our lives. And the beauty of this is that all of you who can hear me, we all live and we all breathe. You cannot change the past, but you can change the future by employing some of these uh, ideas and some of these notions. What would be the verdict of uh, the the Lord's life, examination of your life, I'll tell you what it'd be. Here's your crown. Listen to me if you're a believer. (laughs) Here's your crown of righteousness. No matter what we view our lives to be, God views our life through Jesus Christ. So run the race, fight the good fight, strive to be faithful to the Lord and his word. And if you fail, when you fail, just repent. Ask God to forgive you and move on until you cross the finish line. Father, Lord, we... We have an interesting view of Paul.